Hello, and welcome to Optimizing Neurosurgical Practice podcast. We are talking this episode about bridging generational gaps in neurosurgery. I'm Dr. Brian Gantworker. I'm a neurosurgeon in Santa Monica, California. And our guest today is Dr. Nicholas Bambakidis. Dr. Bambakidis is immediate past president of the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. He is also the chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at University Hospitals Case Western Reserve and my former chief resident. Uh, Dr. Bambakidis, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. You had to remind everybody I was your chief resident. Yes, you are the, the immediate culpable person. So that's that's all you. Great. So thanks for joining me, though. Um, you had a great meeting in San Francisco. Congratulations on a successful run. It was a very informative, um, great guests, great lectures, and uh, a great uh, opening to the uh, very successful meeting. So we're basically going to be talking about how we can sort of cross generational gaps, not just from us to our younger colleagues and trainees, but also how we can sort of see ourselves and our former mentors and how we can sort of pass along the things that we learned from them. You and I had a lot of the same mentors, so um, hopefully we'll have a nice uh, discussion about how their influences still influence you and how you're going to pass those lessons along to the next generation. We're going to start off um, and ask you, in what ways do you see yourself influenced by your mentors in becoming chairman? And what sort of sage advice would you have given yourself today? You know, Brian, I think neurosurgery is a unique field. I, it, mentorship is such a key component of how we uh, learn our craft and how we uh, pass on the, our, our knowledge to the next generation. It's a great question. I mean, I you know, where we trained at, at UH, and at Case Western, it has a very long history of mentorship. You know, Dr. Selman talks about that regularly. He talked about it at his lectureship on mentor, mentoring the next generation at, at the annual meeting, you may remember, where he talks about um, uh, John Jane when he was a faculty member at Case Western and at UH. It must have been back in the early 80s, I think, or late 70s. I'm not sure 100%. But uh, Frank Nelson was the chair, and at that time, Dr. Jane was studying for his boards and wanted a few days off and um, to study, and, and, and Frank Nelson wrote him a little note saying, to, words to the effect of, that you're here to train, you know, the next generation, not so much to, for your own career edification. And, and years later, um, Dr. Jane relayed that back to Dr. Nelson, that that was sort of his an awakening moment for him when he realized really what what his career was all about and and so i think so much of what we do embodies that philosophy it's so important with respect to not just taking care of our patients because that the mentorship is 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 really carrying on that knowledge um the things that we learned as residents and as fellows and even in junior practice from our senior partners you know, take better care of our patients because ultimately that's that's really what we're trying to do on a day to day basis. What, what was your second question? Now I've forgotten. Much <laughs> I'm going to become a yeah. truth politician. I think is <laughs> no. It was a great response. I, I would agree with you. Um, what sort of career advice or sage advice would you have given yourself maybe when you're first starting to train or when you're first attending? Now that you've been out for a, quite a long time. What sort of advice would you give you today? Would you give yourself back then sort of in terms of like, if you were to mentor yourself doing what you're doing right now, what sort of advice would you give yourself 
uh, back then. You had, to, you had to mention how long it's been, or not, just in general, but it was a long time ago. Yeah. Time stops for no one, buddy. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, it's uh, Father Time is undefeated, um, yeah, uh, exactly. the story goes. But I, I don't know. I think it's a, I would, I would definitely choose the field over again. I think neurosurgery uh, has just such a unique place in medicine. Really, I, you know, talking to the medical students, there's no subspecialty in medicine where the highs are as high as they are in the lows or as low sometimes. I, I would probably have, have, you know, savored the mystery of training a little bit more. And, um, you know, of course, back in those days, we, we, we were, um, residency was a little bit different than it is today. Um, common sense rules in place now uh, with respect to work hours and duty restrictions that were not in place back then. But so it was easy to just kind of get lost in the day-to-day uh, aspects of, of training and even in early practice. But I think probably savor the aspects a little bit more. I, I also think that as you get further along um, in your career, you start to appreciate you know, what you can learn from patients rather than, and what the patients can learn from you. And it's sort of a back and forth uh, transactional sort of relationship in many ways. And you really only as a resident, think about what you're learning from the patients, but you, you tend not to focus on, uh, on the patients and their families as much as probably we could have. I mean, you know, I, I talked to the residents and you have to remember Every, every patient is the most important person in the world to somebody, right? So I think that's, that's something I probably would have kept in mind a little bit more. Back, back decades ago, yeah. when I was in residency, as you pointed out. I mean, uh, I, I tell the people, you know, when I'm in the operating room, that the most important person in the room is not me. It's not anesthesia. It's the patient, right? They're always the top. And like you said, they are the most important person in the world to somebody. So I think keeping that in mind is very important. I know you and I had the same mentors, especially one person that stands out is Ben Columbia, who's passed away, um, who would run on his patients two or three times a day. Um, and uh, although he was very fervent and sometimes and very insistent in how he wanted things, I, I think you and I both learned a lot from him and people like Dr. Spetzler, Dr. Sontag and Dr. Selman, who really sort of drove that into us. So that's a good lesson. Yeah, no, I totally agree with all that. Ben was amazing. I mean, he was he was very detail oriented and a great doctor, and uh, certainly is missed. Well, thank you for that. Uh, the next question is: What for you has been the biggest challenge dealing with generational attitudes, if you could even say that, in incoming residents, and and also simultaneously putting your own vision for the department into place? Well, I mean, I think that clearly you can't get away from the fact that there are are different priorities in place in, I mean, and this is something that is true through history, right? I talked a little bit about it in my presidential address where, you know, it, um, but, but it's apocryphal, but I don't know, you know, so I don't know if it was truly Socrates who said that, you know, that words the effect of that the, this generation is, is doomed the future of mankind, right? And this was hundreds of years uh, before the Christian era, and and so I think um, we all we all um, recognize that you know work life balance and things and, and career aspirations are probably different a little bit um, in amongst the current 
um, group of training uh, physicians, but it doesn't make it better or worse, or it's just a little, maybe a little bit different. And I think that, and it goes along with the fact that the way we train is different, right? I mean, we were not doing an endless number of cases over and over again. You, that's it's still important, but you know, there's there's other aspects to it: uh, surgical rehearsal and and um, video learning. You know, um, you know, using the internet and all the tools that are available um, to train residents. I think is is a, a critical part of uh, of education these days. It just wasn't true, um, you know, twenty years ago. So in your situation, you're actually using tech to bridge those gaps. It sounds like I think you have to. I think most I think most training places are doing that. But I I also think that um, that just the way that people consume knowledge is so much different now. Not a lot of folks are carrying textbooks around. I mean, I still think they're important in terms of education. But you know, there's the way they consume educational material is is so very different. I mean, for example, you know you you know about um, CNS Nexus, Peter Nakaji put it together. It's it's made to sort of follow that paradigm, very digestible snippets of cases visually appealing where, where residents or trainees can get right to a surgical case that's identical to the one that they're dealing with in that moment. Um, I think I think so all those things have to be taken into account when you're talking about a training program, right? Because it's just not lectures and just being in the OR anymore. No, I think it's a lot more. And it's funny you mentioned uh, carrying around textbooks. I'm looking at the same copy. It's on my shelf of Greenberg that I carry throughout residency. It's held together by rubber bands and chewing gum and, and duct tape, but it's there. It's on my shelf. So it's very different now. Very yeah. Different. And I think there's still a place for that. I mean, clearly, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I just, but even textbooks have changed. You know, there's often a video component to them and, and an online component and so on. And and so, but I think to your point, you know, things are just different. Um, excellent. The next question I had for you was, it's sort of a pivots off this. How are you making sure the residents coming out of your program, your graduates, benefit from the lessons learned both from your own teachers and your own life lessons? How are you perpetuating the knowledge that you've gained and and, and sort of imbuing them with not just the lessons, but also the moral and ethical necessities to make good decisions and take care of patients? I don't know. I mean, uh, some of that, at those aspects of training are timeless, right? I mean, we look back, you mentioned Ben Columbia, Robert, Spetzer, Volker, Sontag, and Warren. I mean, you know, the, those, you just learn, and Dr. Ratchison, you just kind of got a sense of how those, you know, being a physician hasn't really changed at the end of the day since the era of, of um, ancient Greek physicians in so many, in so many ways. I mean, I, you're still, you're still, there's aspects to it, putting your hands on the patient, talking, sitting down and, and, and taking a careful history and an examination and things like that, that are timeless. And, and so I think those, those things have not changed so much. Um, I mean, there's no way to ensure any of that, Brian. I mean, you do the best you can, right? To and and I think all 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 of us are have a role to play, not just in training, but also when we're out in practice, just making sure that we're up to date on the latest medical knowledge and information. Um, you know, I'm active on the American board. I think you, you know, I reviewing your own cases sort of 
carefully and honestly in your outcomes as a regular thing. I think you try and inculcate that in your resident complement that that's a lifelong thing you should be doing. Um, but there's no way to ensure any of it. I mean, you do the best you can. It's like raising kids, right? I mean, you know, you do the best you can and they leave the house and then they're grownups, so. That's very true. In fact, um, I was texting another one of our mentors, Matt Likovic recently, and um, uh, I had mentioned him in one of our um, uh, notes, one of our article, one of my articles from the California Association of Neurological Surgeons, and I sort of pointed out him and both Ben, and he thanked me for the shout out, but also said, uh, uh, all we can do is do our best and ask God for forgiveness. Uh, but I think it's true. At the end of the day, you've got you kind of have to sort of set them afloat like a like a little sailboat on the lake and just hope that they can weather the storms from the lessons that you teach them. But yeah, and I, I think your point about generational differences is a valid one. I mean, I you know, again, it's not to say it's better, better, or worse. It's different. And I think you just recognize that they're not they're not going to learn the same way we did. But that's you know, maybe that's OK. Right. And and. And as you say, you do the best you can. And that and that definitely sounded like a Matt Likovic phrase. 100 percent It's directly I can show you the text. Um, yeah, it was it's definitely one of the axioms. Um, but I want to ask you uh, a couple more questions and then um, obviously, you know, we can have an open discussion afterwards. But uh, you just came off a, a very successful term as CNS president and you continue to serve in various roles in our fields, such as the ABNS. Uh, and you're also a mention of the uh, member of the joint section cerebrovascular as well. Um, what do you think other current and future leaders in neurosurgery need to do to cultivate the potential leaders in the millennial generation and the Zoomer generation and beyond? Those things. I, I don't know. I think I think it's a great question, Brian. I mean, I think I think certain people really have a passion for that kind of work, and other people just generally have a passion for other things, which is fine. I think the different roles you mentioned um, have, again, different aspects to them. So for example, a large organization like the Congress is devoted to education and it, that's, that's really the cornerstone of its mission, right? So that's, got, that's why I got interested in it. Um, whereas the, um, you know, the, the Senior Society of Neurological Surgeons is a, it's program director, chairman sort of, um, aspects where Washington committee socioeconomic aspects to it so again the CSNS you've been involved in the CSNS too right so it has a uh, very different um, um, socioeconomic sort of um, uh, uh, background and emphasis I and, and same for the American board right so I think the key is to kind of find out what your what folks that you're mentoring are or have a passion for and then guiding them because they don't sometimes understand where those paths may lie. So if somebody really has, an, has a passion, for example, quality and data and outcomes and, and whatnot, the CSNS might be a perfect sort of, hey, take a look at the fellowship that the CSNS provides or, or you know, try and get them involved in the Washington Committee if they're very interested in advocacy. But you know, our, our, I think our, our goal as mentors, similar to the folks that mentored us, is to kind of identify where those passions lie, even if they're not recognized by the, our trainees, and then guide them into things that, well, at least to the best, because we're wrong too, plenty, to the things that are, you know, we think might 
they might benefit the most from. But it, it is, you, you do have to really want to do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a lot of time and effort that you can, you could obviously spend in so many other ways. And so you have to have a passion for it. I, I do think the board is particularly, particularly fulfilling because it really directly impacts the field. And so the work that you do as an examiner and reviewing cases and, and helping people in that way is really meaningful. Um, having just spent eight hours examining this past weekend, I can say that. Well, yeah, I will say the board is, the ABNS, the boards have definitely changed since I took them um, eight years ago. So I think they've actually changed for the better. Uh, I'm glad you guys are doing that work. I participated in a couple of board review courses for the CNS um, um, that I was asked to do by Dr. Barkadarian and the other uh, group. Um, so I, I'm glad for that. But I, I think uh, uh, cultivating people's talents, it seems like, is a key thing that you're saying. Understanding what their passions are and sort of helping them meet those um, different fields or sort of guide them in a way that if they have a, a penchant for something, then sort of uh, encourage that and point them in the right direction. Is, is that you think? Yeah, and they don't, and it, it, yeah, and just like we're wrong sometimes, they don't often listen necessarily, right? They're, I, I, it's the analogy again is they are like our children and I do yeah. joke, no matter how much advice we give them, they usually go in the other direction. Um, but, you know, that's how people learn too. So, but yeah, I think that's the, that's the takeaway, at least the way we look at it. And I think a lot of the residents may be late bloomers. I mean, I didn't become involved in advocacy or anything until the last, you know, six or eight years. And I was just sort of like doing my thing, but I think people sometimes discover their passions like later on in their careers or even almost on accident. So I, I think, but you still come back to the things you saw and learned in your training that sort of help guide you and how do you how do you execute those offices or those responsibilities properly? So I, I think it kind of goes back to that sort of generational bridging that we talked yeah. about before. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there, and you never cease sort of learning the things about yourself and your career as you go forward. And that's the beauty of organizing neurosurgery. I think that there's it for people who have an interest. There's there are a lot of different options. I, I do think one of the things we have we have to do better at at least on a larger societal uh, level is, is, um, is interact and find the unmet needs that our um, folks in the middle or later in their careers might have in terms of large societies. That's something we continue to struggle with uh, even in our educational offerings, so. I, I would agree. Um, I've talked to a couple senior surgeons um, and uh, some of them want to continue to learn and to teach. Some of them want to be called, uh, you know, involved in the uh, ACS, for instance. Um, I think probably opportunities in sort of interconnecting some of the societies might be one of the ways we can look at doing that at some point. Um, there was a meeting that stressed inter stressed interconnectedness too in San Francisco, as you may recall. So I think. <laughs> How could I forget? Keep reminding. Yeah. Um, so the last question, unless uh, you want to keep uh, keep going, um, is and we talked about about our kids. Um, uh, how old are your kids now? I mean, one of them, I think. Uh, Evangeline is 22 and Peter is uh, um, 19. If your own children, Evangeline or Peter, decide to become neurosurgeons, <laughs> what challenges do you think they'll face and what pearls of wisdom or caveats would you give them? It's interesting because because Eva is just she's a first year medical student, so it's not a it's not something that has not come up. 
Wow. And, you know, I think it's so hard for us, Brian, in our generation to kind of ident- I mean, it's, it's, we trained in such a different era. I mean, you know, we, I look at our faculty, we were 30%. I mean, in our, and again, our, we're 30% women in, at UH, but we've always kind of had that, I think, a little bit. You know, Dr. Ratchison was very much um, ahead of the curve with respect to that in our field. But still, I mean, it's it's such a different residents are having families, you know, during residency. And it's and it's it's not the exception anymore. Right. It's kind of um, so I, I think it's it is so hard for us to to counsel them. All I can tell you is that it's the same type of thing. It's to me, neurosurgery is still the most rewarding subspecialty in medicine. And um, you can impact patients' lives in ways that is just hard to replicate in a positive way. You can do it in a negative way too, unfortunately. Um, sometimes we've all been there, but um, um, but it really can, there's just really nothing quite like it um, in, in, in medicine. And, and so, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I if my kids did it, I suppose I would be very proud of them. But I would also be a little nervous. I don't know. It's just it takes. It is. It is a field that does take its toll on on. And I, you know, it's. Um, we we've all sort of been there. You know, the risk of burnout and what what is where is the priority and you know so many hours we have in the day. You know, our families or our work and, and cultivating whatever hobbies we might have be able to outside of work. So, um, but you know. I think it'd be great if they did it, but I, but I'd be a little nervous at the same time. <laughs> As would I. I mean, encouraging a, your any of your family members to go into medicine is kind of dicey, uh, especially a field like this where even with hours restrictions, your your brain is always sort of in a case or assessing your case or how could I have done better. I mean, I think we're all taught to be super critical of ourselves and each other. Um, and on one hand, I think that's really good, but it, it does take a toll on you too, not just the work hours, just the stress, anxiety, and everything else that we think about, especially if you're facing down a very complex case. I know you're with the difficult vascular cases you do, and you still do open neurosurgery, which is unfortunately becoming a little bit of a lost art. Hopefully it doesn't get lost altogether. Um, but those are very difficult, uh, difficult operations and, um, you know, replaying cases in your head can get exhausting. But uh, yeah, I think what you said really rings true, you know, especially if you bring it home, literally um, your own family, considering a field like this. Yeah, I think the next generation, this is one of the things they're very attuned to is wellness and balance and things like that. And, and, and you know, the trick is going to be how do they achieve excellence, you know, without and be able to maintain those, those that, that, that careful balancing act, right? Because admittedly, some of our, Folks, we we'd been around in our early training and whatnot didn't do as great a job as that as uh, uh, what you might hope people would. And I mean that that goes that's true in any profession, right? Folks who who struggle with that, but our, the new generation, the youngest generation of learners are very in, in tune with that aspect of of training and career choices. So that being said, at Case Western, we still have you know a very large number of students interested in neurosurgery and. Um, we continue to get in front of them uh, early in their four years, and I think that that helps um, impact them and sort of what they they think about um, uh, of the field in general. Yeah, sort of cultivating the next next generation going forward. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, Dr. Bambakidis, thanks. This has been extremely educational and fun for me, especially because we haven't had uh, this much FaceTime in quite a long time. You've been super, both been super busy, but I wanted to thanks for participating. Uh, and this has been uh, Bridging Generational Gaps in Neurosurgery, a segment of the Optimizing Neurosurgical Practice podcast from CNS. Dr. Bambakidis, always a pleasure, Professor. Thanks, Brian. Take care. Appreciate it.